Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to the portion that we read, Job chapter 38, and reading for our text, verse 31. Job 38 and verse 31. Canst thou bind these sweet influences of Pleiades or loose? the bands of Orion. And specifically, it is the question, Canst Thou? We continue this evening, uh, our Thursday evening series on questions asked in Scripture. And the book of Job has more questions asked than in any other book. And though we confine our thoughts really this evening to this question to Job, canst thou, or are you able, can you do this? And what is implied is that Job cannot do this. Yet, as we read this portion, no doubt you registered how many different ways questions were asked by God to Job and really with the same import, the same intention. But in just in this uh, book, there's 18 times that Job is asked with these words, Canst thou uh, do this? And these things are set before him. So I want to look at three points. Firstly, God's purpose in asking this question. And then secondly, those purposes that are shown in Job's case, what the Lord is aiming at in Job's case, just picking a few of these canst thou's. And then thirdly, those purposes are shown in other scriptures as well. So I want to then look firstly at God's purpose in asking this question. If we go back to Job chapter 32, we read when Job's friends uh, stopped speaking to him and it was because he was righteous in his own eyes. Chapter 32, verse 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Well, let us just think briefly of what actually had happened to Job. We have in the very beginning of the book, the first two chapters, an account of what Satan was permitted to do in Job's life. May we always remember that Satan is bound, God is in control, And even in these things that were brought upon Job, the Lord governed them, ordered them, and in the end, the latter end of Job was better than his beginning. The word of God is very clear to tell us that with Job, there was no cause that Satan should move God to take away from Job many of his things, his loved ones, his goods, his lands, and then later even 
his health and his strength. How often it is that when we get things coming into our lives and troubles and difficulties, Satan will first turn around and accuse us and say, this has come because of something you have done. You can't expect the Lord to help you, nor to go in prayer to the Lord, because you have brought this upon yourself. Uh, These are things that you deserve. Well, in the book of Job, who more afflicted, we may say, than any recorded in the word of God, we are clearly told in his case there was no cause, there was no reason at all. And at first his friends, they came, they came to sympathize with him, but after a number of days, they sat with him seven days without speaking, but then they thought, well, this continued trial and the severity of it, there must be something wrong with Job. And they sought then to bring many things before him and to bring him in as guilty. And then Job started to justify himself. Then he started to even uh, set himself as righteous in his own eyes or righteous before God. Now it's one thing for God to say, like he said to Job, that he was righteous in that his works and all that he did, he, like the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, even before he was called, all that he did, he did with a clear conscience before God, even believing when he was persecuting the people of God, that he was doing God's service. And uh, with Job, he was walking in an outward way, righteous and upright before God. But we must know, however outwardly upright we are, sin is mixed with everything we say and do. Paul is very clear of that, that the righteousness by the law, that is not saving. It is the righteousness by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is saving. And so with these trials, what it really brought out from Job, well, brought out several things. First, it made Satan to be a liar because Satan said that Job only served God for what God did for him, hedging him about, preventing things from happening to him, preserving him on every side. His thought was, you touch all that he has, and he'll curse thee to thy face. And that will be true of many. Apart from the grace of God, if God afflicts us, then we will turn against him, and we will leave him and not follow him. Many, many do not uh, pass that trial of faith. They are offended by and by, and they go back, walk no more with the Lord. But with Job, and really with all of God's true children, sustained by grace and by the goodness of God, they will not uh, be cast away. They will not go back from him. And so Satan was proved a lie in that. But God had another purpose, and that was to show to Job what was really in his heart, really bring him in as a sinner and as a one guilty before God, needing 
the mercy of God, needing the grace of God. And it is in these trials that our dross comes out and all what we didn't know was there comes out. And then the Lord deals with that. And so this is what came out with Job. His pride rose up. He was righteous in his own eyes. And his friends had sought to uh, deal with him. But now they had ceased to answer him. They couldn't deal with the matter. Then first of all, Elihu, the younger uh, one, he kept silence while the other three three friends had spoken. But now his wrath wrath was kindled against uh, the other three that had been speaking with him because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. And so now in the portion where our text is, it is not the friends that are speaking, it is not Elihu that is speaking, but it is the Lord himself speaking with Job. And he's bringing these very many questions to Job and confining our thoughts this evening to this question, Canst thou? So what is the purpose of this line of questioning by the Lord in a way that he will deal with Job effectively, not like his three friends, but bring him to be humbled. And that is the very first thing that the Lord does when he asks these questions that really are highlighting here is something that we cannot do. It is to humble us before his almighty hand. Make us to feel very small. All the while we think we've got all the answers, we know all, we have everything at our control, we understand everything. Then we can ride on a high even before men. And even before men, if we then have someone that comes and they really show us many, many things that we cannot do, then our pride starts to evaporate and to disappear. It has the effect of to humble us. One of the greatest sins is pride and spiritual pride. And the Lord knows how to bring that down and to lay us low. And that is his design because... As our Lord was made low, humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him. So he'd have us also humbled and brought low, that he may then lift us up. And that is what he did with Job. It may be that the trials and things that we're passing through have brought things out from us and made us confront things in our thoughts and in our lives that we never thought was there at all. And we think, why is the Lord doing this? Why is the Lord showing me such things? Why am I being so discouraged and so disheartened at what I feel and what I see? And the answer is, one of the answers, the Lord is humbling us, bringing us low that no flesh might be glorified in his presence. 
The second reason is to highlight our inability. Yes, it is God that does that. Highlights our inability. Our inability in so many ways to pray, to seek Him, to hear, to walk in a right way, to do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Many things might be laying upon our hearts, our burdens this evening, things that we've had to see that we've so failed and that we do not have this ability to do these things. And it's God that's highlighting it. It's painful to us, humbling to us. I always remember when I first started my apprenticeship, fitting and turning, and I was only 16. I'd come from school, and at school, trade school, I'd made many things. I'd came across with lots of awards, first at this and that, and I came in there as a first-year apprentice, but with such pride and such unteachableness, I knew it all. The fitters, they didn't know anything. And I had to be brought out of that. Some of the younger men, they thought were the best way was to give me a few punches and that might bring me down humble, but that didn't work. And what did under the Lord's hand was when my fitter introduced me to the boilers, the boilers that run the steam for the heating of the hospital. I'd never worked on a boiler before. I didn't know what they were. And to go into that boiler house at such high temperatures, the whistle of the steam and the great sense of the power and everything that was there, and there was nothing I knew whatsoever. And that stopped me. That humbled me. Here was something that I didn't know, I couldn't do, I needed to be taught in all of those things, my inability was highlighted, and it had a good effect upon me. And so, we need that in our lives, to be brought to those situations where we have no help in self, we have our inability set before us, and especially when we may think in eternal things, that heaven is at stake, our soul's welfare is at stake, and here we are faced with uh, such a poor, unable to do or think one thought aright. Well, the third purpose in asking these questions like this, canst thou, canst thou do this or that, is to magnify what God does what he can do, that man cannot do. He is in control in all these things. He is in control in Job's life. He is in yours. He is in mine. And it is to highlight, who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when God commandeth it not? And is there anything too hard for the Lord? We looked at that question uh, last Thursday. And so it is to magnify what God can do. May this thought be an encouragement to you. If God is showing you what you cannot do, really what he is showing you is what he can do. And he's preparing you to receive what he can do by showing that you can't do that. You think of the Apostle Paul writing to 
the Romans. And in Romans 10, he's saying that his kindred, who he longed to be saved, that they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That they were going about to establish their own righteousness. Really, that's what Job was doing. And had not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They thought their own works were good enough. And what a blessing it is if God shows us our own works are not good enough. Not to crush us, not to destroy us, not to show us our portion is in hell, but to make way for his righteousness, for what he can do, what he has done, and what he can do for us. So in asking these questions that are highlighting what Job cannot do, bringing things before us in our life, highlighting what we cannot do. May we think of God's aim. Is it humbling us? Is it showing us our inability? And is it in turn showing us what God is able to do? And so really focusing our thoughts and our prayers, our desires, our petitions to the Lord on those things that we cannot do instead of trying and trying still to do them and to achieve them in the best ways to bow before the Lord and admit, admit defeat, admit these things cannot be done. Of course, in this portion here, the Lord does it in such a way that Job doesn't have any answer. He cannot, he cannot find something that he can do. So I want to then look secondly at these purposes as shown in Job's case. Now firstly I want to go back to when Zohar was speaking and that's in chapter 11 and we have verses 7 and 8 there and the question is asked in the same vein, same way canst thou by searching find out God Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? And so the question is, canst thou find out God? A man cannot. He cannot find out God. Heaven of heavens cannot contain him, says Solomon. How much less this house that I have builded... God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that God has decreed that man, by man's wisdom, shall never find out God. He cannot uh, be saved that way. He cannot find out God. And he's pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God is to be revealed. He will reveal himself and man cannot find him out. You know, in this very deep trial of Job, one thing that added to that trial was when the Lord hid his face from him. And you can read in Job 23 the great distress that he had when that was the case, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even unto his seat. 
I would order my cause before him, would fill and fill my mouth with arguments. But he couldn't find him out. He couldn't find him. And this was part of his trial. Maybe it's a part of your trial, my trial, that we seem to be so far off. God has shut the heavens as brass. Our prayers don't go through. We seem to be so earthbound, so hard, so dead, so cold. We cannot find out God. We know not where uh, to seek him. You think of in that resurrection morn, they have taken away my Lord, I know not where. They have laid him. Our Lord drew out from dear Mary, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? But you know, that resurrection morning, it was a morning when the Lord was showing himself to this one, to that one. They didn't find him. Not all their searching, they didn't find him. The Lord revealed himself to them. Think of that. Remember that. Well, this is something Job could not do. And yet God would do. And God did do for him. And may we be encouraged in that as well. But then Job is asked, can he control the seasons or the heavens? And this is where our text is in verse 31. Hence thou bind these sweet influences of Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion. Now these are speaking of the constellations of the stars in the heavens. And those stars appear at certain times in the year, and Pleiades especially, some 800 stars, are part of a uh, constellation in the uh, skies, and those stars, they control the springtime. When it comes to spring, it is the heavens that move them. We often think, well, the, the, the moon that is governing our tides, it's pulling the waters back and forwards every six hours. But we little think, well, actually the seasons, they also are governed by the heavens as well. The earth is not just on its own and not... Uh, unaffected by the stars of course the sun the greatest star is that which gives all heat and life and energy to the planet and uh, we, we go around that sun so the Pleiades we have the sweet influences of springtime when springtime comes can we control that can we Bind those sweet influences and say, well, like winter could continue. I don't want the blood buds to spring forth. I don't want there to be the spring up. Well, we can't control that. We lose the bands of Orion. That is the winter, the cold that we have now. That is also governed by the stars and brings the cold in its season on uh, each, each part of the earth. And so Job is pointed to the heavens and to those things that have a real influence on the earth. And he has to face up, he has no control over the seasons. Now you think about that in a spiritual way. Those seasons of affliction 
O darkness, O poverty, those seasons that Job is going through here, and then the seasons of prosperity. God has set the one over against the other, the day of prosperity, the day of adversity. All these things are coming in his season. We have the day, and then the night comes, and then after the night the day comes. And that's governed by the heavens as well. And so, in a spiritual way, we cannot control those seasons, but God can. And when those things come that bring darkness upon us, bring coldness, we may know that God is able to turn that. There is a set time to favour Zion. There is a time when you change that and nothing can hold back those sweet influences of Pleiades when the Lord draws his people, sheds abroad a Saviour's love, drops in those tokens for good. That is the Lord's doing. You and I cannot control our own frames, our own feelings. But the Lord does. Our hearts are in his hand. In one place in Job, I think it is, it says, He maketh my heart soft. And these things the Lord can do, but we cannot do. So Job had to face with this, Canst thou change these seasons? And how would we answer? And in a spiritual way. Can we change? Can we lift ourselves out of the pit, out of a low place? Or do we need the Lord to do that? And the Lord brings us low to show us our inability and our need. Our need is His opportunity to show His ability. (coughs) But then we have, canst thou no times and this is turning uh, to the next chapter chapter 39 and in the first two verses he is asked the time when the wild goats or the rock of the rock bring forth canst thou mark when the hinds do uh, carve canst thou number the months that they fulfill Those times, do we know those times? Our times are in thy hand. Job is had to face, he does not know these times. God has appointed those times. Again applied in a spiritual way. We think of what the Lord said with the 70 years that he would accomplish in Babylon for the children of Judah. And those times were appointed by God. The times of his coming to this world was appointed. The time of his death, his resurrection, all appointed. And so at our times, all appointed were by him. Then we have in verse 10, a picture with the unicorn. And Job is asked, canst thou control him? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? We're not used to them as an extinct uh, uh, animal. 
uh, we believe, and very, very strong, very self-willed. And Job is asked, can he bind him? No, he cannot do that. And then down in verse 19, the horse, all his strength, canst thou make him afraid? as the grasshopper. No, he can't do that. And so there is one that, even in the animal kingdom, Job he cannot control. Man was given that dominion over the animal kingdom. And yet fallen man, as dear Job, he must admit, no, he even has lost that ability in a measure, to control the animal kingdom. And many things then in our lives as well we cannot control. And the Lord goes forth even further to Leviathan. Many thoughts of as to what that is. A sea monster, something that is very, very terrible. Some have thought it might be the crocodile, speaking of the scales that you can't get uh, anywhere before. But in chapter 41, we have the introduction of him in the first verse. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? And uh, verse 2 as well. And then with verse 7. Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? And then we have in verse 10. None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? And if we were perhaps to use the example of a crocodile that is just lying on the, the on the grass and we were to go up to it and we poke it and we'd stir it up and then suddenly it would, it would arise in all its fearsomeness and danger. Who would dare doing that? If we knew what it was to stir it up we wouldn't want to do that. We'd avoid doing that. And I often think with Leviathan, it is a picture of what sin is. What sin is. If we stir up sin, we cannot control it. It is a great enemy and you, you cannot get barbs into it. You can't manipulate it at all wilt thou play with him as with a bird no uh, and many things that are said about Leviathan often think with sin now you think about the thought of stirring up this great monster this fearsome monster and you think if sin is stirred up the apostle Paul he said that I was alive without the law once but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Sin was stirred up. That which was lying, as it were, asleep, then it was stirred up and it was brought to be a, a great monster, as it were, uncontrollable, something that he had no power against whatsoever. And yet we know this, that wherever the Lord stirs up sin like that through the commands of the law in a sinner and it rages in their bosom and it, it creates such havoc in their lives and they cannot control it. It's like the Apostle said, 
he died. He, he died to any hope when he saw this, what sin really was in all its angry, horrible ugliness and the great beast that it is. But wherever God stirs it up, he does it for a purpose in the day of grace to bring those to conviction, to bring them to the sinner's friend, to bring them to the saviour of sinners, to bring them to need the saviour, to bring them to look upon him that was made sin for them who knew no sin. And so we have this thing that Job could not do, and you and I, when sin rises up, and you may this evening so have such a view of sin that only seems to get worse and harder in your life, something you cannot manage, and yet the Lord can. Think of this, again, this principle, what God has brought before you and I, that we painfully feel we cannot imagine, cannot deal with and cannot overcome. It is to magnify what he can do and what he has done, and especially in this relationship, that he is the saviour of sinners. He laid down his life to take it again, made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so we have these cases in the book of Job where these purposes are actually achieved. It humbles even a sense of sin. Under God's hand humbles the soul. It highlights our inability to deal with it. And it highlights also what God is able to do to save unto the uttermost all that come unto God by him. We want to look then thirdly at some of the other places in Scripture where these purposes are shown. David in Psalm 139, he speaks of the many things that God does, the great knowledge of God. He says, Thou hast searched me and known me, thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising, that understandest my thought afar off. And he is speaking of those things that he sees God can do, what he is able to do. And then he says of this such knowledge in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Something that dear David could not do, He could not grasp how great God was. How much he knew of him. His very thoughts. He could not go anywhere from his presence. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Sometimes the soul can be overwhelmed with the greatness of God, the majesty of God, how poor we are, how weak we are how feeble we are. And David, a man after God's own heart, was brought to feel that. Then we would go to our Lord himself. Our Lord says to those that were full of anxious thoughts and cares, that which of them by taking thought could add one cubit to their stature. 
He says, if ye cannot do that which is least, why take ye thought for that which is greater? And so the Lord is using those things brought before us what we cannot do to say, well, all those anxious thoughts, those anxious cares, those burdens that you have, and the Lord's using these, and he's saying these, just just adding to you, statue, you can't do that? Well, how can you do these things? And where is he directing us? To himself. To seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, to go to him and not be filled with worry and care and anxious care. And the way he's doing it is to show us our inability. God is managing. He is ordering it. He is doing his will. If there is that which is done, that is to the praise of God, it will not be our works, but God's work. Unto him be glory. And so our Lord goes on later on with teaching concerning the vine. He says that I am the vine, ye are the branches. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, neither can you, except ye abide in me. And he says, without me ye can do nothing. And our Lord is very clear, is what man cannot do. He has not got strength in himself. He has not got sap. He has not got life. The Lord says, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of mine hand. He said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Not in themselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our life is. And it's bound up with him. No man can keep alive his own soul. No. But the Lord can. And the Lord will have us to feel our dependence. Those times when we feel so lifeless, so cold, so dead. You think of how the Lord dealt with dear Peter. Peter said, though all men forsake thee, yet will not I. And the Lord said to him, Satan hath desired to have thee, to sift thee as wheat. But I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And he must go into Satan's sieve. And he denies his Lord three times. And then the Lord meets with him afterwards. Lovest thou me more than these? How the Lord knew just how to humble dear Peter. The Lord has said to him before, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. How is he going to strengthen his brethren? By telling them to... Rest in their own strength, to be bold in their own strength. No, trust in the Lord and to rely on his strength, not to rise up in pride against the brethren, but to humbly bow before the Lord and realise their own weakness, rely upon the Lord's prayers and Lord's intercession, that we be kept, that we not lose our faith. That's how, dear Peter, you've only got to read the Epistles of Peter. Beloved, be not uh, amazed at those this strange trial that is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, 
that when his glory shall appear, then she shall appear with him. The fiery trial of faith. Peter speaks very much of it. If need be, in heaviness, through manifold temptations, he knew what it was. And if you're in those trials and temptations and burdens and feel to have denied your Lord and gone back from him, you read those epistles, those two epistles of Peter. One that is strengthening his brethren after he denied his Lord, after he'd been in Satan's safe, they designed for the comfort of the people of God. Then we have the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. We've already referred to him, uh, that which happened when the law was brought into his life, when he was brought forth as a sinner. And so how did he find that in the reality when sin had been stirred up like that Leviathan? We have in, in Romans 7 and verse 18, he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And we find him before that sin that is working in his members to be just helpless and no ability against it at all. And he has the answer there, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Not me. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. That conflict will always go on between the redeemed, renewed soul of the people of God and their body of death, the sin that works in their members. They'll find it too much for them, too hard for them. Many an errand to the throne of grace will be, Lord, deliver me from this sinful self, my sins, and the risings up of these sins. O wretched man that I am, is what his language is. And those that walk in the flesh, he says later on in chapter 8, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. We need to be in the Spirit. We need his Spirit. And to walk after the Spirit, that is, after the things of God. May we remember the Holy Word of God is the inspired Word of God. If we're walking in the Spirit, we're walking in the word of God. Order my footsteps by thy word. Or the psalmist says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto and according to thy word. And it is then a spiritual way when we are walking according to the word of God. And we seek that the Lord would give us that grace to know and do his will. But then in verse 26, he says we don't even know what we should pray for as we ought. But then is that where it ends? We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But no, the Spirit helps our infirmities. The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so again, scattered through Scripture, no doubt you and I 
as we go away this evening will come across other scriptures and you think here is something that we cannot do but here is what God can do. There is God working out his purposes to humble us, to highlight our inability, but also to show us what he can do. Remember that the Lord prepares the way for his honour and glory. He'll have the man that was born blind so he could give him sign. He'd have Lazarus not healed before he dies, but dies and then rise from the dead. He'll have the woman of Nain's son dead so that he raised him from the dead. It's his first miracle. he have them run out of wine so that he could turn the water into wine. And all the time it's those things that man cannot do. And the Lord does. And the Lord prepares these ways. These individuals like the man born blind even from his birth, or the woman with 12 years with the issue of blood, all laid up in store, that inability that no doctor, that none could come near, against that time when the Lord would do it. And the Lord would appear, and in a moment, he would accomplish uh, that blessing. And so we have then, in the words of our text, this question, Canst thou... So may the Lord bless this word to us and may he show us that which he is exalted to do and give us to be partakers of it to his honour and his glory. And may this word be as a key or an interpretation of your life and mine at this time and the Lord use it so that very soon he'll turn that captivity and turn our inability into his opportunity to work and his way of achieving his end to bless our souls and to glorify his beloved Son. The Lord add his blessing. Amen.